Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. G'day everyone, welcome to the Sydney Writers' Festival. My name's Benjamin Law, welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so thrilled to be here with you all today on the beautiful lands of the Gadigal, which is part of the great Eora Nation. First Nations people on this continent have been, of course, telling stories for tens of thousands of years, and together they constitute the oldest continuing civilization this planet has ever seen, and we are all here so grateful to elders past and present that we can continue sharing and telling stories here on what is and what will always be Aboriginal land. I'm also really excited to be talking today with the author of one of my most favourite novels of recent years. It's so brilliant, it's compelling, it's a Moorish murder mystery, but it's so many more things than that. And for me, it really braids the literary brilliance of someone like Alice Pung with the keep-you-awake-till-2am thrill of reading a Leanne Moriarty novel. And of course, it's no surprise that both Pung and Moriarty are massive fans of this book too. The book's called All That's Left Unsaid. And I know a lot of you are here because you're massive fans of the book as well. And for those of you who haven't read it, I'm pretty sure you will be soon. It's really been one of those breakout word of mouth books passed from reader to reader, bookseller recommendation to customer over and over again, lauded by critics until it has found itself long listed for this year's Stella Prize. Its author was raised in southwestern Sydney, earned her MFA at the University of Kansas, and was previously a reporter at the LA Times. She now lives in Brooklyn, but she's here today with us. All That's Left Unsaid is her first novel, so please welcome to the Sydney Writers' Festival and back to Sydney, Tracy Lee and everyone. <laughs> Tracy, how are you? I'm good. I'm surprised that so many people are here. This um, is a sold-out event. Yeah, that's that's wild. And it's great if you've all have read it, but if you haven't read it, that's even more wild that you paid for a ticket to yeah. an event. <laughs> you've been dragged here against your will. You don't know what's going to happen, but you are going to be delighted when you find out. Hey, Tracy, there are so many characters in your book that I want to talk about soon. Um, but I feel like one of the big characters is actually where the book is set which is Cabramatta, in the 1990s. So correct me if I get any of these details wrong, but uh, you were born and raised in southwestern Sydney, grew up in Cabramatta in the 1990s, and I think a lot of people might remember, especially if they grew up in Sydney, a lot of headlines about that place during that time. But can you give us a sense of like what the popular perception of that place and time was versus, say, your reality of it? Yeah, so the novel is set in 1996, and in 96, I was eight years old. So the heroin epidemic was sort of in the background for me. And I did a lot of research while I was writing this novel, and part of my research involved looking at news articles that were published in the 90s about Cabramatta. And the headlines then were like, it's a war zone, gangland, heroin epidemic, heroin capital of Australia. And even now when Cabramatta is written about or talked about, that is what people lead with. It's like Cabramatta used to be known for its gangland, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, still. And I always found that fascinating because it wasn't my reality. It was some people's reality, but it wasn't mine. And so I was interested in 
or sort of like the, the gulf between my experience and other people's experience. And that's when I sort of went down the rabbit hole of trying to understand, well, why was there a heroin epidemic in Cabramatta in the 90s? Why that population? Um, and, and that ends up forming the basis of all that's left unsaid. And before we go down that rabbit hole together, you mentioned, like, that wasn't my reality. I mean, you're a kid during this period. What was your reality of Cabramatta during that time? Um, so, again, it being something in the background, um, I didn't realise I had an unusual or different childhood until I went to uni. So I attended UTS, I studied communications, so I suddenly went from being at a high school where it was predominantly Asian and Middle Eastern to being in a classroom where I was one of two Asian people and everyone else was from like the North Shore or uh, the Inner West. And when I would tell people, you know, first day of class, you do your icebreakers, where are you from, which high school did you go to? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm from like Fairfield, Cabramatta. And people would be like, oh. Mm. And I'd be like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so realizing, okay, people have a certain perception of Cabramatta. And then I remember also in my first year of uni, I was talking to a friend about like going to the chemist and I remarked that, oh, the chemists here don't have like lines for people to buy fit packs. And he was like, what's a fit pack? And it's like, well, you know, at Chemist in Cabramatta, there are two lines. One line is for people who have prescriptions and the other is uh, heroin addicts who are buying syringes. Mm. Um, and he was like, no, we, no, that's not a thing in like, mm. <laughs> in like the Sydney CBD. And I was like, oh, okay, so there's another thing that's different. But again, that was sort of like just backdrop. Right? For me, I just watched a ton of TV. I, I was entering Talent Quest. I was on the debating team. I was like a very normal kid mm -hmm. um, who had like a very ordinary upbringing. I, I mean, Cabramatta in the 1990s makes me think that it's actually part of a bigger Australian story as well. Like that period, I mean, we're both children of the 90s, growing up Asian, in a time where the conversation around Asian people, whether it was about Cabramatta or more generally around the nation, was quite vexed, quite pointed. Did you feel that? So I do remember Pauline Hansen's maiden speech to Parliament. Mm. And the reason why I set my novel in 96 was because that's when the speech was given. So I remember watching on TV you know, her appearing on the screen and saying, you know, I'm worried that Australia is being swamped by Asians, they form ghettos and do not assimilate. And hearing that as an eight-year-old, it was the first time I had heard a person with power say something that I knew was bad with impunity. No one got up and interrupted her. No one said, actually, you can't, you should not say things like that. She was just giving her speech and it stuck with me. And so I filed that away. And then I'm thinking, okay, I'm setting, a, you know, this is a work of fiction, so I can create an incredibly tense environment. What would be the most tense environment? So in the 1990s, there is a heroin epidemic in Cabramatta. In 1996, Pauline Hansen uh, gives her maiden speech to, to Parliament. Um, you've got a predominantly Southeast Asian refugee population in Cabramatta at this point in time, and also a 100% white police force. Mm. 
And so you sort of mix all those ingredients together and suddenly the tension is just there before you've even included a murder or, you know, a friendship drama or family drama or anything like that. Yeah, it's a tinderbox kind of like ready to kind of explode, right? Yeah. Um, I want to talk about your writing career soon in terms of like how you found yourself in fiction, but I guess the point is you currently live in the United States, so you actually have quite a distance from Australia nowadays, and I'm wondering like with that distance how you've been seeing Australia and this chapter of Australian history differently? Yeah, so I've lived in the States for about 10 years now, and I think the distance helped me appreciate Cabramatta and elements of Australia. Because you know, being in the US, I have looked for a Cabramatta equivalent. Like I've been to Little Saigon in LA, I've gone to San Jose, I've looked for like the Vietnamese community in New York City, and nothing is quite like Cabramatta. And I've wondered why, what is it about Cabramatta that is so unique? And I realized it's because it's Australian. Mm. It's a product of Australia. So many of our ethnic enclaves, whether it's Lakemba, Punchbowl, Marrickville, Chatswood, these are all products of Australia. And historically, we, ha we typically think of enclaves in a negative light, right? Whether it's unemployment, failed to assimilate, uh, violence, crime. But we often forget the value that they add to Australia, Australian identity. Um, and so having that distance helped me appreciate you know, these places as Australian. And then it made me think, why don't we ever export these narratives of Australia? Mm. So living in America, when I tell people I'm Australian, they think that I'm from the outback or they think <laughs> I might have surfed. And I'm like, not this one. Um, and it's like, you know, I, when I was researching for this book, I looked at the census data from 2016 and 2020. In Sydney, around 25% of respondents in the 2016 census identified as having Asian heritage. Mm. A quarter of the city isn't reflected in our media. You know, when you watch Neighbours, how many Asians, a quarter of the cast Asian, right? Uh, in our movies, how many people are Asian? And it's because we, we don't export those narratives. We export a very narrow image of ourselves. And the problem with that is that we start to internalize that. Even locally, we start to think of Australia as a white country. Mm. And the, the, the effect of that is it must mean that if anyone who isn't white must be a guest, and a guest can be asked to leave. Mm. And so those were all elements at play when I was like living in the US thinking about Australia. Um, you know, as some people say, it's, it's very hard to read the label from inside the jar. So I had to step away to read that label and be like, oh, so that's what's going on in Australia. Huh. I want to talk more about like how you found yourself in the US, how you found yourself writing a novel as well. Uh, let's go right back to the start. You mentioned UTS, is that right? And your introduction to writing was through journalism. Were you studying journalism at UTS? Yes. Yeah, right. Why journalism? So, like so many people my age-ish, I was obsessed with Dolly magazine oh, as a kid. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's great. I, I've been uh, going through the old issues in my parents' home on this trip back, and I've kept them in pristine condition. Like You're I'm, an archivist. I am. Yeah. And if, back in the day, if, if there was anything that 
had my byline in it, I'd have two copies, one for the archives, one for the hands. <laughs> um, and so I remember reading like the human interest articles in Dolly. I wasn't interested in the fashion or the makeup mm. stuff because I couldn't afford it anyway. And it was all like white girl makeup. Mm, so I was, was like, like, Alison Bray, we can't look like her. Well, I definitely won't. Yeah. Or it's like bright blue eyeshadow. And even yeah. in 2002, I no. knew that was not. Yeah, <laughs> not okay. Not okay. Um, but it was the human interest articles about other teenagers that sort of opened my world. And, you know, my world was small, not because I lived in southwest Sydney, but because I was 13. Like, how big is any 13-year-old's world? And our internet was dial-up back yeah. then. So magazines really were the thing. And I found it remarkable that, oh, I can read this article and then I remember this person. I remember qualities of them. I remember the stories that they're telling. And then I remember seeing the masthead in Dolly magazine and recognising like people's names and seeing career progression, where one month someone would be the editorial assistant and then six months later they'd be a features writer. So mm. I was like, there's a job yeah. Yeah, associated with this. So it doesn't seem that risky. Um, and so that's when I was like, I'm going to be a journalist. I love hearing this so much because it feels like, you know, we've actually only just met each other in bodily form today, but I feel like we are actually living each other's stories because like magazines were my big lifeline outside of my little world when I was growing up. Again, dial-up internet. But like little Asian kids like reading these magazines thinking the world is out there. What I love about Dolly magazine as well is that Dolly Doctor was real. One person, Dr. Melissa Kang, Asian. So like representation was already there already, <laughs> even if, like, if even if it wasn't on the covers. Um, so from journalism, you, you, you go from being obsessed with Dolly magazine, archiving it, <laughs> and then studying it, and you pursue that as a career? Yes. So once I got to UTS, I had grown out of Dolly magazine, um, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I, I, was, I was like, you know, I think there's, there's something else I can do in this space. So I interned everywhere. I worked at, like, uh, did an internship at a local newspaper. Um, became a games journalist for a period of time. Were you already a gamer? I played games, but uh -huh. I would not have identified myself as a hardcore gamer. But mm -hmm. I could have a conversation with someone about any type of game, um, and I would know the lingo. Um, it's not that hard. <laughs> and, um, and so I did that for like probably three or four years, and as part of that, I moved to the US because I was working for Vox Media. Vox mm. with a V, not F. <laughs> um, so I went there with Vox Media, and then within like 18 months, I got a job at the LA Times as oh, a business cool. reporter, and then did that for four years. Um, and that was like, it was a wonderful job. I loved working at a big paper, loved covering like Silicon Valley technology and business. But yeah, the reason I had gotten into journalism was because I wanted to do the Dolly thing, which mm. was to tell a story that would hopefully still resonate with someone a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. And around the time that Donald Trump was elected, every day was a new crisis, but there was a new crisis. And so the stories I was writing, it was just like breaking news, you know, and I was like, this isn't really what I want to do. Like, the stuff I'm writing now, it, it loses its relevance the next day. Mm. And so I started, I had a bit of an identity crisis because I was like, I don't know what I want to do. I, I don't want any other beat in journalism. Um, I've lost interest there. And an editor at the time said, have you considered doing an MFA? And I was like, I have no idea what that is. Sounds huh. like a master's in finger painting. <laughs> um, 
And you know, he told me like it, you could study fiction writing if you want because you're still interested in writing, but you just don't want to be a journalist. And plus, you could teach. Like once you have that degree, you can become a teacher. And I was like, I don't know if that that's what I want to do, but I don't have any other better ideas. What was your relationship to fiction like at that stage? Because journalism, especially like newspaper journalism, like it's about the current the current events, the very stressful news cycle that that was playing out when Donald Trump was elected as well. But yeah, were you were you reading a lot of novels at that time? Yeah, I was reading a lot of novels, and I started to pay attention to how they stuck with me. Hmm. And I realized a lot of these novels are doing a better job of accomplishing the thing that I had set out to do than my journalism work. Um, and when I started in the program, I was, I was so scared about making things up, which is, if you're in a fiction writing program, it's kind of the name of the game. You have yeah, to make yeah. things up. But you're not supposed to do that in journalism. Not supposed to do that in journalism. And so, like, in my first semester, a lot of my short stories were autobiographical, and I would tweak one or two things, and I'd be like, it's fiction now. <laughs> and it took me a while to sort of get comfortable with making things up, and I'd say after the first semester, I was like writing about koalas going through portals into other universes, and, and then, you know, I, I was fine with making things up after that. My kind of theory when you're working in one genre of writing and you're hopping to another genre of writing is that you're actually kind of like match fit, but there are muscles that you need to train to to do this slightly different sport, like it's all sport, like all writing is writing. What were the muscles that you needed to train in order to get better at fiction? Um, the surprising thing was that once I got over this fear of making things up, a lot of the training from journalism translated over huh. really well. So for example, um, writing with clarity you know, have, write a clear sentence, make sure that the reader knows what you're saying, that transferred over. Discipline was another thing. So when I first started working on this novel, I was so intimidated by the, pros the prospect of writing a novel because in journalism, the longest thing I'd ever written was a few thousand words. And so I remember going into a bookstore to find the shortest novel that was on sale. It was The Incendiaries by R.O. Kwan, 200 pages, and I was like, that's roughly 300 words a page, that's 60,000 words. If I get to 60,000 words, I have a novel. <laughs> then I was like, 60,000 words, that's like unprompted as mm, well. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, how do I get to that? Just bite a bit off every day. So I started by doing 300 words a day, and the novel approach was stopping at 300. And so if I was midway through a sentence, I would stop. Huh so that I would leave gas in the tank for the next day. And I'd come back the next day and I'd have no idea what the second half of that sentence was meant to be. But I'd be like, I'll just figure out a new ending to that sentence and I'll continue on with my other 300. Is there a kind of process going on there where you're kind of like tricking or gaslighting your own brain into not believing that you're writing a book? Because writing a book, that concept is really deeply intimidating, right? Whereas like three, 300 words at a time, stop in the middle of the sentence if you need to. That sounds like almost fun? Well, yeah, because the task is no longer write a novel. The task of the day is write 300 words. Yeah. And it's, you do whatever you need to do. Like, I have a neighbour right now who's doing, she works full-time and has four kids. She's doing 25 words a day. Mm -hmm. 
and like she and like most sentences are longer than 25 words. So she finds she writes more than 25 words every time. Yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. better than sort of freezing up and looking at a blank page and then writing nothing. And flatulating yourself at the end of the day for not having written a novel. I misheard like, that oh my as gosh. like flatulating, and I was like flatulating. Yes, we you, have been yes, given gassy water. Yeah, there as is well sparkling stage, water so, as an option. You know, if you hear if you hear flatulence, and that's that's the reason why. Um, so you start writing when you start writing those 300 words a day, is that what becomes this? Yes, but it, it's messy at first. Uh-huh. And I have this really weird home-building analogy that I use, which makes no sense because I have no survival skills and I can't even build like an <laughs> IKEA bookshelf. But it's like the first draft for me is like I'm saying, you know what, I've lived in a house before. I've seen other people's houses. I can build a house. So I build a house, and it looks like a house, but then someone comes in, so a, a trusted reader, and says, this is not structurally sound. This is going to collapse yeah. and kill you. Yeah, right. So I'm like, okay, draft two. I'm <laughs> going in, and I'm putting, like, a, a load-carrying beam or whatever. I'm reinforcing <laughs> things. It's standing. It looks like a house now, and it, it's fine. Draft three, someone comes in, and is like, you forgot to put in plumbing. Yeah, so that's when I'm ripping out walls. Like, it's structurally sound now, but I have to rip out the walls to add plumbing and electrical work. And then, like, the next draft, I'm going in and I'm using, like, spackle and paint and <laughs> making it look nice so that by the time it's this, you know, readers are like, oh, wow, you built this all by yourself. And I'm like, yes, yes, for I someone, did. For someone who says they don't know a lot about house building, you just convinced me that you really did. It's almost like you're a fiction writer making stuff up. I, I Googled it. <laughs> I, 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 we're going to talk about what the book has actually become, but as you give, give us that analogy, I'm really keen to hear about what that difference was between that first draft that was essentially a house with no insulation or toilet and um, violated building codes uh, versus now, uh, which is a book that's been translated into many languages and is all over the world at the moment, um, the book that many of you have already read. What what were those main differences? Uh, Were they structural or had you not sorted out characters? Yeah, so the first version of this was going to be maybe a short story collection. And I say maybe because in my first semester, I well, first year really, I had been writing a lot of short stories and my classmates read them and gave me feedback. And at the end of the year, one classmate asked me, oh, are you writing a linked short story collection? And I said, no, I don't think so. What makes you say that? And they said, well, every story has been written from the point of view of young Asian girls living in Cabramatta in the 90s. Hmm. They seem kind of connected. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Whoa. I didn't realise I was doing that. Huh. So it was like... Pfft. And I, so I, I reflected on it and I said, okay, clearly I'm circling something. What am I circling? And it was like, well, in each of these stories that I've written, I want people to know how it feels. What do I mean by that? Well, I want people to know how it feels to have grown up Asian in Australia in the 90s. What do I mean by that? I want people to know how it feels to be a conditional citizen. Hmm. So growing up in Australia, you're told from a really young age, you're as Aussie as they come. You belong, you'll get a fair go, you'll dinky die, blah, blah, blah. Um, Only to realise at some point that that's not quite true. And for me, I realised that it didn't apply to me or to people who looked like me. I realised that my citizenship was conditional on my impeccable behavior, on my success, and on my gratitude. And if I ever did anything to step out of line, then I risked being perceived as a nuisance or a threat. And we've seen a version of this play out during the pandemic, right, where 
the opinions of the majority can turn on a dime. One minute you're like, you know, you guys are the modal minority, your success stories, like Asians do so well. And then COVID hits and it's like, and you are carriers of the mm, Kong flu. You brought it here, yeah. You brought it here. We need to keep our distance. Um, and so it was still relevant, right? And so I wanted to capture that feeling and give it to a reader. And at that point, I was like, I could write, essentially, I could put this in any sort of format. It could be a short story collection. It could be a novel. It could be any any number of kinds of novels. Like, it could be a romance. It could be a thriller. It could be whatever. Um, and I decided, okay, this is a heavy-ish topic. How do I make it entertaining? Because there's, there's a really great quote from Viet Thanh Nguyen, who won the Pulitzer Prize for The Sympathizer, and he said that a lot of novels that are historically or politically concerned tend to be long on mood but short on entertainment. And why can't a novel do both? Mm-hmm. And so that really stuck with me. So I was like, what are the types of novels that once I start reading them, I can't put them down? And most of them happen to be murder mysteries. And so I was like, Let, let's learn from them and, and put it together with, with my idea and see what happens. And what we get there is the character of Key and the situation that she's in. I mean, when you talk about those pressures of being, a, I guess, essentially a model minority citizen, to be grateful, to, to not threaten people, all of that stuff, to excel... That really is the protagonist of of this book. And Key, uh, this is not blowing anything away, this is the the plot of the book that you find out quite early on, but she uh, is a journalist and she discovers her brother, Denny, has been murdered. So that gives us the plot. That's the instigating thing. This is a crime with no ostensible witnesses and immediately, like, when you find out what Key has experienced, you are on that journey with her. You need to know... Can you tell us about the origin story of, like... It, you, I mean, you talk about clocking that this needs to be a murder mystery. What was it about Key's situation? Like, where did that, um, where did that inspiration actually come from? So, with making Key a journalist, I wasn't actually basing her on myself at all. Um, I'm much funnier than Key and much cooler than Key. <laughs> and so, like, whenever I have friends say, like, oh, is that you? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like... Do you see these rimless glasses? No. Excuse me. So much cooler. Um, but, like, I knew I wanted my protagonist to sort of be trapped in that model minority mold, which would mean that she's reserved, she's shy, she doesn't want to step out of line. But I also needed her to be very active and to sort of, like, go out there and do the, the mortifying thing of tracking down the witnesses to her brother's murder. And yeah, I think there's a reason why in so many murder mysteries the protagonist is a detective. It's because it's their job to solve mm. the crime. And I didn't want Key to be a detective, but I was like, what is something that is detective adjacent? And it's like, well, a journalist professionally is meant to ask questions and pursue a lead. So giving her that profession and giving her that training was a way to sort of get her out of her uh, comfort zone. Her, the victim of the crime is her brother, and she's only one of two. So this effectively renders her like the last surviving sibling. And immediately, like, that premise really affected me. Like, I'm one of five siblings, but if anything happened to any of my siblings, I would be absolutely wrecked. Tell me about what you wanted to invest in Key's relationship with Denny, her brother. Yeah, so I think this is where a bit of like narrative engineering came in, where I was like... Again, this is a very reserved person who doesn't want to put herself out there. So what kind of relationship would she need to have with her brother 
to make it believable that she would be willing to step out of her comfort zone to do this thing. Um, so I don't have a younger brother, but you know, when I was younger, I always fantasized about what type of big sister I would be. Um, and I think in the dream scenario, I, I might be someone like Key, who's like looking out for her younger brother and has a good relationship with her younger brother. Um, but then also making sure that she felt sufficiently guilty about not being there for him. Because it's one thing for her to have the skill set of a journalist, but it's another for her to also just feel guilty. And then you pair those together, and again, it's like a tinderbox, right, where she now you know, will actually go off and, and do the thing that results in a novel. I really do feel like this novel starts with character. Like, I felt every one of these characters so palpably. And I'm just wondering, like, how you begin to start populating this uh, literary universe, you know, what kind of characters did you want to put in this world and, and what were their inspirations? Right, so it was really important to me that um, I had a lot of different types of characters so that I could make the case that no community is a monolith. So when people think of Cabramatta, they probably have an idea of the type of person who lives there. And in, when it comes to like news reports, people tend to sort of paint a community with the same brush. Um, and we just know that that's not true, right? Not everyone in Cabramatta is the same in the same way that not everyone in the inner west is the same. Um, and so in having all these different characters, they all live in the same place, they all share a similar cultural background, they speak the same language, they witness the same murder, they all chose to not speak to the police, and yet they all do it for different reasons. And so as soon as you follow each character and you flash back into their lives and you realize how different they are, it makes it really hard for you to begin generalizing, right? You start to realize that, oh, this community contains people who are just as funny and stubborn and petty and wonderful and lazy and hardworking as any other community. Um, and the way I tried to embody each character was by suspending judgment, right? So if I, if I think of a character like Flora, um, she's the wedding singer in the novel, and she's I find her incredibly passive, um, and I, my values do not align with hers. But if I write this character while judging her, she's not going to come across as real. She's going to come across as a cartoon character. So I had to suspend my judgment of her, because she thinks that what she has done is right. Mm. And so what kind of life did she have to live? in order to arrive at that decision. And this is like an exercise that you could do with anyone, right? You have a disagreement with friends, with coworkers, with your parents, like you, there's a clash in values. If you take a moment and ask yourself, what life did they have to live to arrive at this point and make this decision and believe that they did the right thing, suddenly you have more compassion for them and you don't necessarily start agreeing with them, but you see where they're coming from. Mm. And I did that for every character. Flora's one of many characters who were there at the scene of the crime that night that Denny dies, and yet no one saw what happened. And this almost is like as much a mystery uh, in the book as the mystery of who actually killed Denny. So it's like, how were so many people there that night when it happened, and yet no one, there were no witnesses essentially, no witnesses to a crime. Um, and when I read that, I was just like, how is that possible? And it's through discovering the characters that you realize that. But what was the inspiration for that idea of a crime with no witness? 
Well, in, in my research, again, reading a lot of old newspapers, there was this tiny clipping, like probably 200 words long, in the local paper, and it was about how there was a community fashion show held in southwest Sydney, 200 people were there, and then two rival gangs showed up, and there was this massive knife fight. And then when the police showed up and they interviewed the 200 people who were there, they all said that they didn't see anything because they were all in the bathroom at the same time. <laughs> the bathroom had two stalls, right? And so it's like, okay, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. But then another thing that was in the article was that the police officers said something to the effect of like, you know, this community just doesn't cooperate. Right. Which is a really dismissive thing to say and it shows a lack of understanding as to why they're not cooperating. Um, and I definitely incorporated that into the novel as well. Flora, the, the singer that you were talking about just before, is just such a memorable character. I love the way that you give us insight and access to all of these different people. Um, one of the other characters that really stayed with me is someone called Mrs. Faulkner. Tell us who Mrs. Faulkner is. So Sharon Faulkner is the one white character in this novel who gets her own chapter. She's a high school teacher. She teaches all the students... Uh, who, like all the student characters in this novel, and she also happens to have, uh, she was a witness as well. And she's trying to do the right thing. Oh, yeah. So I've heard people describe her as a white saviour, but I, I don't think of her as a white saviour because white saviour has the connotation of someone who does something because they're hoping they'll get a pat on the back for it. Like, they're doing it for self-serving reasons, where she's really trying to do the right thing, and she screws up. You know, she, she tries, she comes up short, but she keeps trying. And as a result, I really, like, she might be my favourite character in the novel. Well, I really love the way that you've written her. Would you be able to share us a little bit of Sharon Faulkner? Sure. So if you were at the Beginnings reading series, I already read this part, but <laughs> if you weren't, you're in for a treat. <laughs> okay, so this is the start of Chapter 5. When the first Indo-Chinese refugees arrived in Australia, Sharon Faulkner was a high schooler in Sydney's inner west who had seen Asian people only in photos, on the news, and in World War II textbooks that showed propaganda posters of the Japanese as buck-toothed rats. When the first Indo-Chinese refugees left the Commonwealth migrant hostels in Villawood, Ferry Meadow, East Hills and Dundas, equipped with a handful of English phrases, a distaste for porridge, and the newly acquired knowledge that they couldn't digest cow's milk, Sharon Faulkner was on her way to Newcastle, farther north, to study education with a cohort that was completely middle-class Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And when the first Indo-Chinese refugees settled in Cabramatta, opened the first pho restaurants, established the first Vietnamese grocery stores that sold packets of dehydrated noodles, bottles of pungent fish sauce, and tubs of nose-prickling spices, Sharon Faulkner accepted a job straight out of university at a high school in Hay, some 725 kilometres from Sydney, town population 1,300. Hay was comfortable. Hay was a comfortable place for Sharon Faulkner to teach. In a place like Hay, teachers were on a first-name basis with parents, and the kids themselves weren't too different from her. They all burned easily in the sun, watched cricket on Boxing Day, and used the term mate in a passive-aggressive manner to signal that they'd run out of patience. But Sharon was a city girl at heart. She wasn't made for Hay's scorching summers or the vast ring of nothing that surrounded the town and stretched for hundreds of kilometres in all directions. The first time she saw a tumbleweed, she ran out of her cottage in pyjamas and thongs to follow it, giddy to see where it would go, a neighbour's driveway. 
By the second, third, fourth, and fifth time they rolled by her house, her classroom window, or alongside her Toyota Corolla, they reminded her only of how far she was from the tree-lined suburbs she so dearly missed, with the milk bars run by Greeks and Italians, the diversity of colorful neighborhoods where heads of rich brown hair dotted a sea of blondes, with olive-skinned blokes who said use when they really meant to say you. Sharon spent three years in Hay. She took the first transfer available to a city school in a suburb with a name that she thought sounded Italian. When the first Indo-Chinese refugees, motherless and fatherless, found one another in southwest Sydney, banded together, created their chosen family, them against the world. When they enrolled in high school without, an understa without understanding a word the teachers said. When the parents who came with babies and toddlers raised them as best as they could, put them in secondhand school uniforms, ordered them to work hard, be good, to find success. When a 16-year-old black-haired boy smoked a white powder off a piece of aluminium foil, then passed it to his friend, who passed it to his friend, who passed it to his friend. When the police and politicians decided that a certain ethnic enclave didn't have the DNA to be Australian, and the prime minister of the country said Vietnamese sob stories didn't wring his withers, mm. and the friction of fear and hate coalesced in an Italian-sounding suburb of four square kilometres, Sharon Faulkner, freshly transferred from Hay, hair bleached golden by the sun, arrived in Caprimata. Mm. Tracy Lean, everyone. <laughs> Tracy Lean and Sharon Faulkner, actually, mm. because that is such an indelible kind of portrait of someone. And obviously, Sharon Faulkner is a work of fiction. But what did you want to convey with this character? So she is an incredibly well-intentioned person. And well-intentioned people can still get things wrong. And so I find her incredibly relatable. And I think the important thing, as I mentioned earlier, is she's someone who comes up short, but she keeps trying. And I feel like oftentimes when a well-intentioned person gets called out on something, you misspeak, you said something insensitive, and someone calls you out, there is a tendency to get defensive. Like, oh, did you just accuse me of being, insert blank, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, or worse, getting resentful. And that is so unproductive. And, and people become radicalized in that way, where they start off, you know, really open-minded, but then they sort of shut down because, you know, they get defensive and then they go in the opposite direction. And Sharon Faulkner is someone who doesn't do that. She comes up short and she tries again because her best today might not be good enough, but her best tomorrow might be. And so she's a reminder to me as well that it is worth the effort to keep trying even if you don't get the result that, you're, that you hope for. Mm. The book in so many ways has this element where it's a story about institutional power structures and their shortcomings, you know, whether it's within a school or on a broader community level with, say, the police force, right? And I think one of the things that really stays with me about the book are the interactions with the police and it's one community coming up, as you say, a pretty much all-white police force and their inability to actually help or to actually do their job because they're not equipped to language-wise or in so many other ways. How did you go about writing Key's interactions with the police in this, no in this novel? Yeah, so coming back to that stat earlier about, like, for me, discovering that at one point in the 90s, the police force was 100% white for a community that was predominantly Southeast Asian. Like, that... I mean, the, the image was fairly clear to me that even if these are very well-intentioned, non-racist police, it's going to be a really tough job. But then also, when 
coming back to that news clipping I mentioned where the police officer who was interviewed said, you know, like, essentially, like, these people, you know, they don't cooperate. Like, that kind of tells you a lot, like, the language that they choose to use. So even if it's not outward racism, there is, at the very least, indifference. And so if you have a police force that, at the time, was understaffed, overworked, um, where they didn't speak the language, you know, uh, they didn't share a culture, a culture with the people who lived in the community, there's going to be, like, just tired, grumpy people who aren't, who aren't going to give it their, their all, or who are just, you know, sort of overwhelmed with exhaustion. And so I saw an opportunity there for Key to essentially get what she wanted from the police. Because um, I think working as a journalist as well, I realised that people are just people. You know, no matter how fancy someone's job title is, everyone has the potential to be, like... I don't know, to be sketchy. Everyone <laughs> yeah. has the potential to lie. Everyone has the potential... A sketchy police officer? <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, everyone has the potential to just essentially not do their jobs well on any given day. Mm. Um, people slack off all the time in every profession. And so I was like, okay, here's an opportunity for, for Key to have like a really frustrating interaction with a police officer. Like they don't, again, it doesn't, it doesn't even have to be outwardly racist or antagonistic. They just have to be overworked, understaffed, and, and not up for it that day. And that's the very day that Key comes in asking for answers. I also yeah. found it really amusing and quite satisfying that the way that one police officer is most helpful is actually by violating basic protocol and actually transgressing in his job, which I thought was really, really funny. Yeah, and I find, like, think, think of things like whistleblowers. Mm. Like, you know, they are not doing their job, yeah. but by not doing their job, they're actually helping so many more people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's also beautiful moments within the police station where um, you see the power of being able to be multilingual to actually convey to other people who need help uh, what's needed of them and what's required of them in an incredibly stressful moment. And I think more broadly in the book, there'll be special resonances for Vietnamese Australian readers in terms of um, geography, family, all, all that stuff, but also specifically language. You know, there are moments in the book where language is used and it's deployed in ways that really enhance the narrative and drive it forward. Um, tell me how you wanted to deploy language in this book. Right, so anytime I use a language other than English, I don't translate it if context, uh, if there's an, like, if people can figure out the meaning from context. And this was really deliberate because the moment I translate it, what I'm telling the reader, especially if the reader is like Vietnamese Australian, I'm telling them this isn't for you, mm. right? So think about it this way. When you read a novel and uh, there's mention of the word fur, and the translation is, you know, we sat down and ate a bowl of pho, a Vietnamese beef rice noodle dish, and it's sort of like, huh. <laughs> um, and, like, think of how, how weird that would be if it was like, we sat down and ate a hamburger, a type of sandwich with two pieces of bun and meat in the middle. <laughs> right? Like, that would indicate that the intended audience isn't one that knows what a hamburger is. And so I tried to just provide enough context. So if I'm mentioning, like, you know, we sat down and had bun gong, like... Would it kill you, like, to not know what bungong is? Probably not. But also Google exists. Google exists. You can stretch, right? Readers can stretch. Um, this was, like, so my, my first editor was in the U.S., and it was important to me that I did not explain a lot of Australianisms. So 
they would come across slip, slop, slap and ask me, what is that? <laughs> and I'd be like, I'm not explaining it. Yeah. Like, you can Google it. Use your imagination. Well, Americans can feel like, you know, when we read novels by Americans, we'll come across like foods like sloppy joes, yeah. right? Or we'll hear that someone went to Home Depot for something and, and it's like, they don't explain it. And you know what? We don't need it explained to mm. us. We figure it out through context or we Google it if we really care. And so it was like, I tried to do the same thing for any time Chinese or Vietnamese is used. The only time I translate is when the definition of 5T, which is yeah. the name of a gang, when that's given. And I, I translate that because even a Vietnamese, like someone who's Vietnamese Australian, might not necessarily know what that means. And it's kind of like, a, it's important to the story to know what that means. Yeah. I was really affected by depiction of grief in this book. Um, it's not one I feel like I've encountered much in, in writing before, um, but it's one that feels instantly like recognisable to me, the way that Key grieves, the way that her parents grieve for Denny. Um, how are the people that Denny's left behind, how are they grieving and what was it about their grief that you wanted to depict? Yeah, I think it comes back to the narrow image or the narrow narratives that we export. So when we see families on families on TV grieving, typically they're Anglo families, typically they're very like outward, emotive, people hugging, people like, you know, being there for each other, people like having conversations about their feelings. And I remember when I was younger, like say primary school, early high school, and if I were, were to tell an Anglo friend about how my family was reacting to a certain thing, there would be a lot of judgment about that being like, well, they, mu they, they must not care then if they didn't get you a Christmas present, for mm. example, or they must, not, like, they must not feel the same way that we do if they didn't react in this way. And I always knew even back then that they were wrong. Mm. And I would be trying to explain, like, no, it's it's they care, but we just don't do we just don't do things your way. Um, and so it was important for me to sort of show the spectrum of humanity and to show that no, we're, we're just like everyone else, just because we don't necessarily communicate or express ourselves or expect the same things as people from other communities doesn't make us any less human. What was it like tapping into? Denny's father's and Key's father's interior world because externally the way that he's um, grieving is not demonstrative. It's not physically demonstrative and yet he's got this incredibly rich and complicated interior world that's going on. How did you tap into that? Again, I think it came back to suspending judgment and being willing to ask myself, how did this person end up this way? There are some people who are, have been quiet their whole lives. But then I was like, okay, well, this is a character who has been a refugee, has lost a lot. So what did they have, like, what, what were they like before the war ended? What were they like before they became a refugee? What were they like before they were thrust into a situation where, you know, they're in a foreign land, they don't speak the language, and they have lost essentially their, their social life, their friends, their family? Um, and imagining that. Um, and again, like just assuming that everyone actually has a richer interior life than we might give them credit for. And just sitting there with that character and thinking like, well, who, who would he have been? Mm. Who, I mean, you, you give us this kind of um, 
beautiful ecosystem of characters, but like of all of them, uh, who was most challenging to write and who was most fun to write? The most fun character was probably Lulu, who's the 10-year-old girl in chapter three. And she was fun because I based her personality on what I was like when I was a kid. And so it was just like stream of consciousness, like 10-year-old Tracy has been released. <laughs> it was, um, and that was fun. Um, the most challenging character was probably Flora mm. because she, the feedback I got in earlier drafts was that her chapter is so sad. You need to give her something. Otherwise, it, like mid, she comes midway through the book and she's such a downer. Mm. Um, and so I gave her Jimmy Carter at the end. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it was because she's someone who I found really hard to relate to because mm. I'm, I'm really optimistic. I'm a chronically happy person. And so to write someone so different from myself, was it took a lot of work. I love that this novel has travelled and it's travelled far and wide. It's been translated widely. Um, it's in so many different territories now. Your, your novel, uh, I believe, sold in the final week uh, in, of your MFA. Uh, and we read the headlines like, you know, novelist at centre of bidding war. What was it actually like? What's the reality of something like that? That's fascinating. So the way, so the way my agent had explained it to me was like, okay, in, in the Commonwealth area, there are nine imprints that are interested in your novel. So we're going to set up phone calls with all of them. Each call will go for 45 minutes, and they're all going to happen over the course of three days. Wow. And every call takes a similar structure, okay? First 15 minutes, they tell you everything that they like slash love about your novel. Second 15 minutes, they tell you about how they're different from all the other imprints. Last 15 minutes, they tell you everything they want to change. Oh, okay. And what are the kinds of things I want to change? So what, I think that the biggest change was like, could you write this in a different genre? <laughs> what, like um, rom-com fantasy? So it's like, it's like speed dating. Wow. Right? Except at the, at the end of these nine dates, you have to marry one of them. <laughs> I want to so, watch this reality TV show. And, and the stakes get higher because it's like you marry them and let's say you have a pet that you have been raising for the past few years and they legally adopt it. So even if you divorce them, they have rights to your pet. Okay, so what I'm hearing is... And there's a dowry. <laughs> and there's a dowry. Okay, I'm like... Wow, literature is kind of like married at first sight and uh, just as stressful but with pets. Fortunately, I married well. I love Capricorns. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it turned out great, but the stakes did feel really high. And, like, when it comes to an auction, it's not like a Sydney property auction where you're, like, standing, you know, it's, it's not that emotional and, like, crazy. It's a little... It's slower. You live on the other side of the world now. You're here and the book has travelled in territories in between. What's been the most surreal moment uh, since the book has come out? I think probably coming back to Australia and seeing how much people have embraced the novel. So when I was writing it, I was... started. I wrote it in Kansas, <laughs> uh, Lawrence, Kansas, and my concern was always that you know, this novel is critical of Australia. And I'm critical because I care. I'm critical because this country is my home. I love this place. But you know, a love that is blind is, not, it is delusional, right? You know, if you truly love something, you're able to see it for its shortcomings and you want to believe that it can do better. 
And I wasn't sure if that would come across. Like, I was worried that perhaps readers would see a novel that's just the criticism of Australia and then not give it the time of day. But it's been really wonderful to, you know, have readers be open-minded and and really embrace it and, and recognise that this is kind of a love letter to Cabramatta in southwest Sydney. I mean, the book's been out for a while now, here and beyond. What have you noticed about the differences of reader reactions say, between here and the rest of the world? I mean, it's set here, so there will be readers here who are actually familiar with what you're talking about, but for those where it's like, that is actually a literally foreign environment to me, what have people been saying? So, in the US, people don't care about the Cabramatta part. Hmm. They're like, it might as well be a fictional place. Um, Readers in the US are also, they're like, I had no idea there were Vietnamese people in Australia. Right. And I was like, there are a lot of different types of people in Australia. It's not just the outback and the beach. Um, And yeah, whereas I think Australians are much more interested in like Cabramatta and Southwest Sydney and getting into like the politics of things, whereas readers in the US um, are just sort of like, everything is new. Like, Asian people in Australia? And it's like, yes, yes, we're here. (laughs) (laughs) And what's been the transition like um, being between journalism and being a novelist now? Like, do you still identify as a journalist? I don't, because I don't do the job anymore. When I was leaving the LA Times, it was really hard because... I really liked being able to introduce myself as Tracy Lian from the LA Times. And then I realized, well, if I want to be Tracy Lian from the LA Times, I have to do the job of a reporter at the LA Times. <laughs> and sucks. I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> um, and so it was sort of um, a humbling experience to go from like you know, LA Times journalist to yeah, I'm a grad student, I'm studying creative writing. And, <laughs> and people would be like, oh, that's cute. You know, what are you, you going to do once you graduate? And I was like, oh. Uh. Hopefully something. Look, from one creative writing student to another as well, I, I think about, you know, some of us had to, like, come out to our families as writers. And um, <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, did you have to go through a coming out experience? It's like, I'm going to write fiction. Look, my parents have never been under any delusion that I could be, like, a doctor or a lawyer. Like, I was an incredibly below-average student academically, and I'm not being modest. I... So, recently, I I was visiting my parents' home and, you know, clearing out old stuff, and I got the... I was looking at the result of the selective schools test that I sat three times and didn't get in, and, I, and I, I always remembered it as, like, I was close. I was really... And then I looked at it, 53.9%. Wow. I was not <laughs> Well, close. you were close to something. I was close to the middle. You were close to 55%. I was close to, I was close to 50%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, so I, I think my parents just always knew. I was like... They were like, just look, have a skill and get a job and you'll be great. Um, and I have done that. I think this is a skill and a job. This is a skill and a job now. So they're, they're thrilled. They're very proud of me. And plus, like, I, even if I was a doctor, I'm such a gossip. I could not uphold the Hippocratic Oath. I, I would be the doctor Hippocratic who's... Hippocratic Oath? What? I'd be like, get a load of that guy's rash. You know, like, there's no way I could be a doctor. Got to tell you about this abscess that I saw the other day. Um, um, you know, I didn't peak too soon, which is, which is great. <laughs> You, you come back to the country uh, once a year, I believe, mm-hmm. and this time you're coming back as a novelist who's written about Cabramatta, and you're going to be, I guess, celebrating and discussing this book in Cabramatta itself. What's that experience going to be like? 
I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. I'm, I'm very nervous because, again, it's like, you know, the home crowd, you, you don't know how they're going to react. Um, and, you know, for me, like, coming back to Australia or when the book was published in Australia, I was more nervous about the response here than how it would be received in the US or the UK because it's like, again, this is the home crowd. And so very nervous. I'll be sweating. I'll probably have tissues in my armpits. <laughs> yeah. And we'll be following you into that session just to see how it pans out. We're really excited. Um, we're really aware that we're coming to the hour and that some of you will want to go to the next session. But just before we wrap this up, Tracy, um, I want to hear about you as a reader and what are you really digging at the moment and can you offer us some recommendations? Yes, so a novel I just finished, uh, the author is actually at the Writers' Festival, her book is probably for sale here. It's The Sun Walks Down by Fiona McFarlane. She's such an incredibly efficient writer. In one sentence, she captures the image of a character. In one paragraph, she captures their essence. So if you want just superb writing, The Sun Walks Down. It's like an orangey-red cover. And if you just want superb writing, you can also read Tracy Lian's book. I'm sorry, we're not going to be taking questions at this session because I'm an awful person. But um, if you want to continue this conversation, um, please join Tracy at the signing table where she will be signing copies of her novel. But in the meantime, for now, can you please join me in thanking and congratulating the wonderful, wonderful Tracy Lian? Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.